Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. (laughs) Sometimes success stems from a tough reality. Today's guest, the author of A Blind Pony, as true a story as I can tell. Her book will make you laugh, will make you cry, and it might even save your life. Samantha Hart, welcome. Oh my gosh, I read your entire book. I even started to read it twice. Oh, really? Wow. I mean, I I read every single page. I think I finished the whole thing in like a couple of days. And then I took a little bit to kind of like reflect on it because truthfully, like it was triggering for me in some places. I don't know if anybody said that to you. I've gotten that before. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, it depends on, I mean, if you've had similar experiences, I would think it would be triggering for sure. Yeah. Especially the part about your LA experience, because- Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that was the part that made me like stop because I lived in LA. I moved there a little bit after you. I moved there in my early 20s, but still so small town girl. So taken advantage of. Yeah, Yeah, it's it can be a predatory place, (laughs) Los Angeles. But I mean, I was extremely lucky because it is it can be a predatory place. It's a little scary here, but I met a lot of great people. Even the people who took advantage of me were still, they could have been worse, you know? So in some ways, it was a real valid learning experience in my life. Yeah, I would look back now and say that as well. So I listened to your podcast episode with Darian Parker, shout out to Dr. Darian. And you guys really got into talking about identity and kind of reflecting on who our parents are when we're children and then who our parents are when we become adults and how that really changes and and how you understand who they are. Well, and how we become parents ourselves. And how, you know, that provides another perch from which to reflect. You know, I think when I became a mom, it really turned my life around. I remember getting the positive pregnancy test and kind of sequestering myself away in a small bathroom stall and just going, okay, my life changes today. You know, I mean, very consciously adopting a whole different view of the world in a way, you know, just from, you know, just accepting like, okay, I'm going to be a mom now. That's it. Everything changes. And I had turned my life around quite a bit by that time. I was no longer doing drugs or, you know, on such a sort of downward spiral in so many ways, but I still was vulnerable to repeating the past You know, because in the book, one thing I had gotten, I mean, I can't even believe I get so many good reviews for my book because when I was writing it, I had no concept of what that would be like. I just thought, these are my thoughts. This is what I have to share. This is what I want to put into the world about my experience. And if people don't like it, it was secondary. You know, I wrote it during the pandemic. I, it was a catharsis. I just wanted to get all this stuff off my chest, so to speak. And so when I get a criticism about the book, I'm like, okay, tell me, what did I, you know, what do you, you know, I'm more excited about what people have to say critically than all the praise I've gotten, which is unbelievable to me. But like someone said, you know, oh, the book kept repeating itself. But isn't that what you do with addictions and abusive cycles is they do just keep repeating to change something that is, you know, generational trauma into something positive is, you know, to do something positive with your life after that. I mean, I think it's, it's really what motivated me to write the book. Like if I could survive this, so can you, like, so can you get through these obstacles in life or these curveballs life throws at you or whatever you want to call it. 
I feel like, yeah, it takes a fair amount of repeating bad behavior before you finally get it through your head. And that's what I kept doing as a, as a young woman. I just, you know, I'd get out of one situation and then just be attracted almost like a moth to a flame to something that wasn't because I didn't think I deserved it. I didn't deserve goodness in my life in my young mind, you know, I thought I was damaged goods and I should take what life is putting in front of me. So, and, and I heard you say too, that your mantra at the time was I've got nothing to lose. And I think that that is actually really interesting because when people feel like they have nothing to lose, they do crazy things. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I should have been dead in a ditch somewhere. So anything else that's not that is like positive in a way, or just, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, like the scene in Blankenazo when I'm driving from the airport with this, this guy, you know, this German guy I met on the plane. And I'm like, well, I'll probably be in a ditch somewhere by the end of this night, you know, like this isn't going to go well, but I just, you know, you know what I mean? I just didn't really care. I just thought, well, that'll end this. And, that'll be good. You know, I was going literally from one situation to the next. I wasn't really thinking about my future or my potential. It was really just about survival, like from day to day. I mean, when I ran away at age 14, I had no life skills, nothing to, you know, I grew up on a farm in a rural town. I mean, I, I didn't know like what to expect out there in the bad world. I just, you know, I just went Went day to day, just hoping for the best. Like if it all ends today, that's okay. You know, I actually loved when you went back there to the farm with your daughter. Yeah. Because my parents have lived in the house that I was raised in my entire life. So every time I go back to Kentucky, it takes me literally back to fifth grade. Yeah. Like my room still looks the same, you know, wow. the same That's things so that nice I pinned though. on the walls are some of them are falling down, That's but wonderful. they're still there. That's yeah. Great. So I have memories every single time I drive down streets, I think about shenanigans that I pulled on those streets or the parents that used to live there or the kids that I used to play with. You know, I I have memories on every street that I drive down. Yeah. The memories of the farm are just like imprinted in my subconscious brain. I mean, I, you talked about triggers. I mean, things like I can hear a clanging bell and that's the bell from the farm front porch or a screen door slams shut. And I just jump because that's, you know, when my babysitter stole our money or when the farm door snapped shut or whatever, these kinds of things, like they just live in your, in your mind, like in your hippocampus. And you just, you know, you don't know when it'll get triggered. And in fact, I was really, I was back East recently and I was driving along the New York, Pennsylvania border for a shoot. And I was completely triggered. The road I was driving down could have been the road I grew up on. And I was just like, (gasps) you know, the smell of the petrichor, the, you know, the rain and just the trees and the moss and the woods. And I was just like, you know, kind of surprised, I think, because it's been a while. I mean, of course, writing the book was very triggering, but it was such a strange time and to be writing it, you know, normally, because I I really, I had the time to do it because my business kind of shut down and I just went inside that book. In fact, I've told this story where my husband and my children were out and they came home and like, where's mom? Her car's here. Where's mom? And I had curled up in a ball in a closet like I used to do when I was little because I was so overwhelmed writing the book and the only way they found me is I was I started snoring (laughs) and they found me (laughs) but you know it was like that desire to like sequester myself away and hide and that kind of thing it's very you know when people talk about traumas they've been through yeah you know it's like who wants to talk about this stuff if it's not true or if it's not you know, something that really affected you, you know, like people who say like, oh, forget about it, you know, move on. That was the ancient history. It's not so easy when it lives with you inside your soul and you need to let it go like in increments, you know, it's almost like method acting. I'm wondering, like, if you would have written the book at the farm, if you would have even had more things come up for you. I think if I wrote it from the farm, it would have meant I never left. And then it would be a different book for sure. Trust me, I have often thought like, what would my life be like if I didn't leave? And 
I can't even imagine it. I think I probably would have flamed out somehow. I was pretty troubled when I left. I was pretty abused, you know, and I really was seeking, you know, a refuge from the experiences I was having. I, I couldn't have gone on any longer. I just couldn't. Do you want to talk a little bit about the farm? I know everybody always sure. asks you about that. Yeah, it was a magical place in many ways. I mean, it was in many ways, it really made me the person I am because I'm definitely, you know, I'm sort of a duality. Like I'm a con artist, like my dad, or like a, a storyteller or a, you know, a risk taker, like my father. But then I'm sort of a farm girl and a mommy, like my mom. Like, I think I'm, I think the thing I excel at most in my life is being a mom. In fact, I think I'm a great mom. How um, do you do that? Well, you know, I think it's easy, you know, when you have children and you accept them for their whole self, who they are, and don't try to make them out in your image, then it's incredibly easy to love them. I think the sadness for me, like comes in where I have to stop sometimes and catch my breath to realize that I was never loved in that way. Like, it's hard to believe that you could give birth to someone, they can come through you, and you just don't have the capacity to give them the love they deserve. That's to me baffling. I can understand. It's like I have an endless well of love for my kids and they throw me a lot of surprises. But, you know, like in terms of like, oh, I'm gay. Oh, I'm, you know, going to get married or, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like it's been a cascade of things to sort of acceptance, you know, sort of challenges or, you know, like just all those things, you know, like I'm a mom of four. Yes, I've had lots of things thrown my way that have been very well, then you know like I have three kids <laughs> I don't know how you have four it's a lot it's oh, a lot and I'm entering teenagehood where you're just like I'm having an identity crisis yeah <laughs> with <I> mean, you <laughs> yeah. well it certainly is easy raising my two sons with a partner because I was a single mom with my daughter and that was more challenging because like I was always so afraid she was going to run away because that was my experience So I kind of, you know, I had a hard time, you know, disciplining her or like she never did anything bad. So there was something to do. But you know what I mean? Like setting boundaries because like I didn't want her to run away. And I remember I had a boyfriend and he was like, he's like, why are you so afraid she's going to run away? That was before I told people about my past. And he's like, why are you so afraid she's going to run away? Why would she run from here? She has everything she wants. And I was just like, oh, yeah, she does. Especially she has my love and respect. And I never had that. So the part that was so incredible is that you're like in L.A., you know, you finished your high school degree. I mean, there's so many parts that are incredible, but I I picture this small apartment that you're in and you're trying to, like, figure out a career and how to make ends meet. And, and, and you've got a kid, like I was trying to figure out how to start a career and live on my own and move away from Kentucky and all of these things, but it was just me. So I felt Mm -hmm. free to try anything or, you know, quit jobs if I didn't like them or go to work drunk or, you know what I mean? Like I didn't have a baby. And when I had my first child, I was completely overtaken by it. Having a child is a lot, even one, to balance. Yeah, it is. My daughter lit a fuel for me. She was like, she made me want to be better and succeed. And she gave me so much purpose and self-worth. You know, like I looked at her and I said, you know, I just made a commitment that nothing would, no harm would ever come to her. Like I made like a solemn vow that like she would be protected in that way. Like nothing would ever hurt her or harm her. And, you know, we struggled a little. I remember during her childhood, I was, I had a fairly successful climb up, you know, in my career. And then at one point I got fired from a job and it was a stupid thing. It, I wrote it off like as this guy being insecure because he kind of hit on me or whatever. And then it resulted in my being fired. 
So literally I could have done something about it, but I, at the time in the way, you know, Hollywood was and stuff, it was just kind of like, no, don't go there. But I was devastated because I really loved that job. And my daughter was really young and, and it, it got to the point where I had one credit card that worked. And it was a Chevron card. And so I would go and buy like Scooby snacks for, you know, for our dinner, like at the Chevron. That's how broke I was. But we got through it and I got to the other side of it and ended up being so happy and grateful that this happened. You know, another thing I say in the book a lot is this too shall pass. It's like, yeah, if you let things go and if you let life unfold as it unfolds and just kind of go with the flow and adopt a sort of attitude of, you know, that's a Rumi quote. And I got influenced by Rumi very young. You know, this too shall pass, like let it go. You know, it's, it's what the universe is offering you. And when I sort of had that behavior, it things flowed a lot easier, I think, for me. So like when that happened with with Vignette, I just I just got through it. I came out the other side a lot stronger with a better job, twice as much money. I mean, it, it does. If you let things unfold. Yeah, there were some dark days, but the light comes back into your life. And I think that was another thing that got me through a lot of challenging times. It's really interesting that you becoming a mom that you said nothing bad will ever happen to you. And I'm going to make sure of that because that's what my dad has always said to me. He even says that in the intro of my show. And I really believed that as a kid, which gives you a sense of you can do anything. It does. I think that when you contacted me and I saw your show and your dad and all that, I thought that is so cute. Like, because my dad, I really looked up to him and there were plenty of things about my father that were amazing things. Like anybody who could have a dad, like my dad is a lucky person because there are many things about him that were wonderful, but he just was missing a a chip of what being a dad is really about, you know, like the nurturing side of it, you know, he was young. He was young. He was 27 when he had five children. I also love the part where you talk about when he was like checking out your mom, how they met farm, yeah, and how they were kind of from different sides of the tracks. Yeah. They were totally different sides of the tracks. I mean, I think, you know, religion played a really big part piece in their life and their conflict, which is kind of funny to think about now because we really don't care. You know, like my boys, like we celebrate, you know, Hanukkah, Christmas, Chinese New Year, you know, Hindu, Buddhist. I mean, like I expose my kids to all religions and and we love it all. You know, it's like... And that's a modern world, really. But back then, if you were Catholic, you didn't hang out with Baptists, maybe Presbyterians, but certainly not Baptists. And my mom was born, you know, she was raised in a Presbyterian home, but she became born again Baptist, which for a Catholic, he was just like, give me a drink. You know, like, I don't need this. You know, he hated it. He hated it. And I think, you know, sometimes like, there's no sense in looking back and saying, what if? But, you know, it's it's ironic that the church helped my mother move away from my father because he was such bad news. To what? To where we would be abused on this crazy farm, you know? So in that regard, I think she she did not make a good choice for her family. Yeah, if she had stayed with my dad, it would be hard, but couldn't they work something out? Couldn't she just go along with Catholic, being Catholic for a while, you know, to let things, you know, it, it inflamed him, you know. When you're someone like my father, who he doesn't need an excuse to have a drink, okay, but if you give him one, he'll have 10. You know what I'm saying? It's like he's he's definitely someone who's looking for any excuse to take the easy way, you know, like, or to mess up, you know, Mm. he, you know, well, you made me like, I didn't want to drink, but you drove me to it. Or, you know, I went to Dave's tavern to tie one on because you upset me or, you know, it's too much pressure having five kids or whatever. He'd look for any excuse. And that's understandable. You know, he was young, he was immature. We talked about my not having any life skills. Well, how many life skills do you really have at 18 years old? You know, it's pretty young. And my mom was 18 when she married my dad too. Well, I think families from that era oftentimes did that. So it made sense. I mean, the fact that I had the icky 
grandparent, you know, I mean, that just, that's just the way it was, but it could have actually been ideal moving back to the farm. It could have, but it wasn't. I mean, like I said, there were many things I loved about growing up on a farm that really shaped who I am, you know, my pony and all the animals and the trees and the forest and the the wood sprites and, you know, all the imaginary friends I had and all that stuff was just really amazing. Yeah. Talk about your ponies. That is the name of your book. (laughs) I had a blind pony. That's why I called it blind pony. And it was very metaphoric for me because I felt like she was damaged like me. Like I felt like the reason he gave me that pony was because I was also damaged and it was kind of a manipulation in a way. I was really the only one that never grew into a horse. I stayed with the blind pony. So it was really, it was really strange. I was definitely, I think, you know, because of the age I was, he could groom me and manipulate me to be what he wanted. I had another sister who was at close to my age, but I always put myself in harm's way to keep her from being abused. Oh my God. Because she was very fragile. I used to think in my mind, I was like Heidi, you know, from Heidi, you know, and she was like Clara, the sickly one, you know? And so I, I always like felt like I could overcome things, you know, I was stronger somehow. I truthfully in reading all that you've done and even running away, I I believe you are strong. I mean, so many people would be one, afraid to leave Two, I mean, you moved to like LA, which is such a big city. Well, you know, it's so funny too, because I, as I disclosed in the book, I had an uncle who lived here, but he lived in Long Beach and I had no way of contacting him at the time. It may as well have been in, you know, the Sudan. I didn't know, like, you know what I mean? It's like, it was just kind of... Long Beach is far from Hollywood. Yeah, and I just never knew he was that close. I mean, I I knew LA. I'd come over here when I was young. I came to LA a couple of times, but to Long Beach. And it was a different world, but I knew I liked the weather here. People always say, did you come here to be a starlet? And I'm like, no. I like the weather. I was, you know, I went to Arizona to find my dad and it was so hot. I was like, I can't live here. So first chance I get, I moved over here. So yeah. So your dad left when you were four, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we left him when I was four. Okay. And then what happened? Well, we went on a train back to Pennsylvania. You know, that's when I met my grandfather and realized what he was about. And I lived for 10 years, he abused me. Oh my God. Yeah. Pretty on the regular, you know, there was no respite from it. You know, that only drove me further into my imagination and into this fantasy world. And I was a very good student. I became a cheerleader. You know, I mean, I wanted a normal childhood. That cheerleading part was was heartbreaking too. oh, Oh, that was horrible. When I made the alternate, was humiliating enough, right? When you're a kid, like you get to dress up, but in a different outfit than the regulars, you know, and pass out flyers. And then when they made me a regular, because the girl was leaving town, then her family decides not to leave. So when people ask me like, why did you run away? I usually, the shorthand before, you know, I would say stuff like, because I got kicked off the cheerleading squad or because like something about cheerleading, you know, like they, they put me on as regular and then they took it away. And so I couldn't, I was humiliated and I ran away. That was something that happened for sure. But uh, no, I, that was heartbreaking. Yeah. I was so bummed because I was like excited for you that you made that. Yeah. I was excited for me too. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was like a detail that really stayed with me. I think, you know, when you get developed, like I want to win attitude, it's hard to know what made you evolve into that. You know what I'm saying? Some people don't want to, don't care about winning or they don't care about being the best or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, they just accept their place. I never would accept my place. Me either. With my book, I said, I said to my husband, he's like, you have to, this is so good. And I said, all right, I, I don't even want to publish it. I don't think it's that good. 
I mean, what? And, and he's like, oh, come on. He says like, and I said, okay, I'll send it out for a review. And if it gets a good review, we'll publish it. If it gets a bad review, I'm not publishing it. And it got like a rave review. So I was like, see, because you have to publish it now. And like, I never expected like any kind of success from it, any kind of say, I didn't, it's just a little, you know, tree falling in the forest. And for a little independent book, it definitely made some noise. So I'm like, are you going to turn it into a movie? I've been thinking, you know, I mean, I've been, I was approached by a few people and I don't know. I mean, we'll see what happens. Right. I definitely think that'd be amazing. I was also like, I know that it was such a short span of your life. It was from like 14 to 20, right? Yeah. Are you going to make another book about your other adventures? Well, I am working on a book right now and it's not about my other adventures, but you'll recognize the central character. So it's, it's kind of, I'm not doing a memoir this time because, you know, the memoir was really hemmed in by the reality, the facts of what mm-hmm. really happened. I remember like my husband would read a new chapter and he'd go, and then she should do this. And then she should do that. And I said, but she didn't do that, honey. I can't do that. And he'd be like, oh, come on. You could embellish it a little. I'm like, no, you really can't. You know, if it's a memoir, I mean, it has to be pretty faithful. And these are real people in the book. I changed a few names, but not really that. I mean, sometimes I would say their real name, but not give their last name because I didn't want to, I didn't want to make it a sensationalized book, like any celebrity people or whatever. It's not important that they were celebrities. What's important is what happened. And through this young girl's eyes, you're seeing these things. She didn't care they were celebrities. She didn't know who they were. And so she was just seeing these things. You got to understand, by the time I moved to Los Angeles, I had maybe been to a movie theater twice. That's it. So I really didn't know. I didn't have a lot of cultural references even, you know. I mean, there was Sound of Music, Mary Poppins, and Funny Girl. Those were the three movies I had seen in the theater. So I was kind of an amalgamation of Mary Poppins, you know, or one of the Banks kids in my fantasy, you know, and Julie Andrews running through the field singing The Sound of Music. And, you know, funny girl, you know, don't tell me I'm done, you know, like whatever. I mean, I was like, you know what I mean? In my mind, these are the characters that I was, that were magical to me or that would get me through the day. Like I'd hear, you know, the hills are alive, you know, walking down Rodeo Drive. I mean, you know, like whatever got me through. So, so like if I saw a celebrity that was in some obscure movie, I know them now, but at the time it, it didn't register. You know, it was just kind of like, oh, rich guy, like, or, you know, selfish guy or egomaniac guy, you know, or whatever. I didn't have, so I really tried to embody that in the book, you know, where you felt like she had this kind of, she was clever and intelligent, but she had a sort of gee whizzy attitude at the same time. Did you get that? Oh, you totally did that. The Batgammon tournament too. Oh my God. I wanted to be a fly on the wall for that. Yeah. That was pretty off the hook. That was really, yeah. Sometimes I wish I could go back and rewrite that scene because there was so much more to it, you know? I was wondering like if stuff got cut from the book that you wanted to add. Some things I couldn't go there because if I told a certain story, then it would be important to know some of the key players around it. And it's too salacious, just too many. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, I can't believe your book is true. Well, if I had told every story, you really wouldn't believe it. Tons more. Also, in in Darian Parker's interview, you talk about how the Me Too movement like really gave you permission to kind of talk about the abuse. Well, you know, I mentioned earlier, like I had my own share of Me Too moments for, you know, in the workplace and whatnot. And like at the time that I experienced those things, like I really, part of it was my past coming in to inform me, don't tell anyone, you know, don't rock the boat. And then part of it was, you know, I want to work in this industry again, so I don't want to go there. And then part of it was like, I don't want to admit that this upsets me, you know, like, or 
that I have ever been abused because for a long time I was in some fantastical world where I was magical and I, none of this ever happened to me. You know, I pretend I was someone else to survive the pain, but yeah, it, I felt like when so many brave women started coming forward and talking about their past, even though mine was generational trauma, I really felt like it did give me some liberty to discuss topics that people don't want to talk about because people got desensitized. People are a little more desensitized to it. Yeah, that was very challenging for me because it's so it's so disgusting what happened to me as a young girl. So that was real challenging to figure out the right beats to set that up. How do you talk about it? Like you still have to try to put it in some kind of more fluid way. That's not going to have the reader reader going like, "Ugh, this is so gross. I'm not going to read this book. You know what I mean? So I tried to. Yeah, I didn't. It also has got to be so different from your telling of it to how we can take it. Like, I felt like it's so horrible what happened, but it it had to, I mean, it's, it's the most horrible for you. Yeah. Well, as terrified as I was to put this book out there, Rena is as happy as I am that I did. I love know, that. Because, because like, I feel like, you know, it was, I was terrified my clients wouldn't want to work with me. And like, I don't want those clients. Okay. Oh my this God. I love I that you said that. What is happening in this world is truly scary. It is. Truly scary. I mentioned my son is gay. One of my sons is gay and, you know, he's never, he's just an innocent boy at this point. He was 17 years old. He's never had a relationship. He's never kissed anybody. He's never nothing, but he knows in his heart. And it was very difficult for him to tell me. And it was, it was like a lot for me because like, I would have never guessed. I thought I knew my children so well. Now that I know it makes perfect sense to me. But, you know, and then you have to let go of the vision you had of your child and see them as something new. So all that happened very easily for me, but it was kind of like, whoa. But now with all this, don't say gay and all this, like I'm freaking out and with abortion, gay gay rights, gay marriage, like what are they going to do next? I mean, it's, you know, I saw on the screen, like only third, mostly, they're mostly third world countries that outlaw abortion. And now the United States, what does that say about us as a country? I mean, it is sickening. You know, it is because it's not in the constitution. That's ridiculous. I mean, I get it. If you're a mother, you don't approve of abortion anymore. If you give him birth, you know, abortion is a really tough answer because you know, because you feel the light, you know, you know, but No one has the right to tell you that you can't use birth control or, you know, that you can't, you know, if you, something happens and you get pregnant, that you don't have a choice. There is, that's crazy. I agree. That's crazy. And the same people who are complaining about a life and it happens at inception and all this. What about the people gunned down in Buffalo the other day? Oh my God. Those were life. That was life. Those were lives well lived. Those were people living their lives that came into the world because they were probably loved and appreciated. And they were gunned down because of Republicans' desire to have guns. So you can't have it both ways. You can't tell someone who's been raped or molested that they have to bring this life into the world when they know at before the life is even really viable that it's not a good thing for their psychological health. So you're taking someone who could become a really responsible person in the world and contribute greatly and saddling them with the responsibility to change the trajectory of their lives. Like it's crazy. I want to know like about, I mean, you don't really talk about your career journey in the book at all. Yeah. Cause it hadn't really happened. I mean, when my career really took off at Geffen records, Yeah, I had a lot of really great, unique opportunities there. And then from there, I went into the film business and I worked at some, I've had a lot of success in the indie world, you know, Mm. like indie records, indie film, and then, you know, indie advertising, and now I'm into indie books. So, you know, it's kind of like, I've been kind of the Parker Posey of indie advertising, you know? You know, like when I was in the film business, all the films I worked on, I I loved all of them. Like 
four weddings and a funeral and dazed and confused. And, you know, and I had a really, you know, I mentioned I had a big imagination. People say like, how did you come up with all those campaigns? I just went in, you know, into my imagination and used that as like the, the DNA for things. But yeah, I, I, I've had an amazing career. I tell people sometimes I'm kind of like Forrest Gump. I'm just sitting on a bench and people just come up to me. And so I just kind of go along with the show, you know? I feel so. like LA has a lot of that though. Yeah. Yeah. No, LA is a great place, but I think my biggest pet peeve with LA right now is it's running out of water here. Really? Oh yeah. That's it's terrible. Bad. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's a beautiful place though. I mean, all my memories are tied to LA, like almost like a hometown would be. So it's hard for me to see Los Angeles in the state it's in. As it is, I keep moving further West in LA, you know, like I'm now in like my house is out above Malibu, like out in the canyons. And like, I just don't go into LA proper much anymore. So now that the boys are graduating and stuff, I'm definitely looking for my next, you know, move and stuff. You know, I mean, a couple of years ago, I really wanted to change. Like I was restless, but then I made the conscious decision that it'd be better to get the boys through high school. So guess what? Proms this weekend. And graduation is the following week. And then it's like, okay, you know, what's next for Sam? I'm definitely ready to make a big change. That's exciting. Ooh, yeah, to be continued. Yeah. Well, I, I got to finish my new book. It's called The Capricious Life of Charlie Bell. Ooh, I can't wait to read it. I think I actually am going to read your book again. It's so crazy. I'm like halfway through reading it a second time. I mean, it's so deep. It has so much there. It really touched me on a personal level. And it really? took me back to LA. Like, I really felt like I was there. That was kind of fun. Yeah. I'm glad you like it. I'm really touched that you like it. I'm always surprised. You know, I mean, it's not a literary masterpiece, but, you know, it's definitely won some awards. I've been blown away. I was a quarter finalist of the Book Life Prize, which is really, that's amazing, you know, out of all those books. Congratulations. Um, that's so great. Thank you. I mean, I'm really humbled by the whole thing. I'm really, you know, I'm really touched by how many, you know, readers have reached out to me to say that was my life. You know, like I honestly, I was on some radio show, I think in Kentucky, actually. Really? Yeah. And I was like, and I was hemming and hawing a little bit because I was afraid to talk about like the book because I, it was all new, you know, it was probably one of the first interviews I did and I was really not used to doing an interview. It's weird. And the guy was asking me all these good questions, but like I was, you know, so finally I just started to talk about the book. Honestly, yeah, well, this happened and that happened and yes, it's true and whatever. And this woman reached out to me on LinkedIn and she said, I was in the break room and it was actually TV and I was calling in. So it was just my voice. And uh, she said, what you described was my life, you know, and I, you gave me so much hope that I could overcome these feelings. She's like similar age and she has been living, you know, basically a lie, you know, not telling the truth about herself. And she said, she just feels like it's haunting her and she's going to try to, because I, I really stress to people, you know, in life, the way the secret to happiness is to really be your authentic self. If you're not authentic and you don't show up authentically, you're not going to be happy because you're never going to be able to feel good about yourself if you're hiding something. I feel like you know the I mean? reason people don't is because of so many judgments now. It's true. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. But if we all became more authentic and accepting and accepting, would there be anything left to judge? It's got to start with you. Like if I don't speak up on behalf of, you know, like recently we, my partner and I, we were doing a little documentary series of, for the Latino coalition of different places that help people who get out of the juvenile justice system and want to carry on with their lives and how they navigate that process or drug addicts getting reformed or people coming out of jail, getting jobs and stuff, reintegrating into society. We profile all these different people. 
you know, I think that what gives me a really unique ability to find that empathy for stories like this is that I was not that different from where they are. Do you know what I mean? Like I never spent time incarcerated, but how I don't know. <laughs> I mean, your, your listeners are going to go, who is this crazy woman on her show? But you have to read the book, right? You came but, close uh, a couple times there, right? You could have. Yeah, I mean, I did. Blind Pony is true stories I can tell. There's a reason it's as true as I can tell because I left out a few parts. But I was never incarcerated, but by the grace of goodness, so too shall I go or whatever that phrase is. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, I was just extremely lucky. But yeah, it was really hard. I don't think my mother ever, even at the end, I don't think she ever really realized how much she hurt me and how much it impacted me, what moving back there and being abused all those years and how it really like stifled my own potential, my growth as a person, as a woman, as, you know, a someone that can make a bigger contribution in life. I think it definitely threw my life off course for quite a while. And had that not happened, had, had it not, had I not been abused, I don't know, maybe I could have gone further than I did. And I, that would have been great. I'm pretty happy with who I am. So I heard you say that you're starting a foundation to help other girls who have gone through something similar. Yeah, I'm still putting all the pieces together. But yeah, it's something I feel really committed to. My husband and I do a lot of pro bono work. And a lot of like, it's, I mentioned the Latino coalition, we're working with Spirit of America right now doing aid to Ukraine. So we, we use our time and talent a lot for these causes and things. And so it really has been resonating for me more and more since writing the book, just how many people, you know, I say there are a lot of blind ponies out there. A lot of people that don't feel, and I met a lot of these people, young women, when we were just working on this Latino coalition, like I would talk to them for five minutes and I'd say, well, I know their story. You know, I know exactly what happened. I could almost put together in my mind what happened to them. There's a great book written by a psychologist with Oprah Winfrey that's called What Happened to You? Hmm. They said like, that should be the question people are asked trauma survivors, not what did you do? No, it's what happened to you. It makes so much sense. It's such a simple thing, but it's really true. You know, it's like we are a sum of all of our life's experiences. And so some of these negative experiences, they're up to us to turn them into positives. And part of turning it into a positive is admitting that it happened. If you don't admit it happened, there's, there's no way you can deal with it. You know what I mean? So I think like, I think just re-educating women, but I think, you know, now with women's rights, even shrinking, it's sort of put a different spin on the idea for me of the Blind Pony Foundation to figure out how I could best serve women, young women. I'm not really sure. I love the question, what happened to you? I feel like that could really bring a lot out if you're asked in that way. Yeah. I mean, if you read that book, it's really powerful. It's I'm really going to. Book. Wow. That's amazing. You sh- yeah. You should have that guy on your show, the co-writer, the co-author. He's really interesting. I can't, Dr. Bruce, I forget his name now. That book came out right around the time Blind Pony did. And it was trending on the same, I got exposed to it because it was, if you like this book, you'll like interesting that book. Yeah. So I made the connection, you know, Amazon pairing. (laughs) So it was kind of wild. Were you able to patch things up with your dad? Yeah, pretty much. We got on the same page, but barely. I accepted my father. My one thing about my father is my father never pretended to be someone he wasn't. I love that. (laughs) Yes, it's so true. And so that way he never really disappointed me, right? Well, you know, like I got all those letters that I wrote to him returned to sender. I have them and they're in my naive little handwriting. So you've opened them back up? Yeah. Like there's smiley faces on the outside of the envelope. I was just a girl, you know, and I wanted his approval so badly. And so when I ran away and I found him and he was basically like, yeah, have a rum and coke with me and you know, and we'll talk. And by the end of the evening, 
you know, he's giving me a key to an apartment and, you know, my new life. And he says, I'll pick you up and put you in school tomorrow, which he did. You know, he showed up in the morning, took me to, to Camelback High School. And then I didn't see him for six months. I knew what I was getting in. You know, I knew he was a scullywag. I heard it my whole life. My mother actually taught us to call him it, you know, not even a person, you know. So yeah, I mean, he was, I never expected much of him. We had our own relationship. It was very, you know, it was very much on his terms and that was fine. Like I told you this, you know, in the book, the story of when he came and stole the poinsettias out of JCPenney and I got fired, you know, I mean, he just did things to do, or he gave me a car for my graduation, even though I was only 15 and I couldn't legally drive it. I had no driver's license. I, I was very mad when he put sugar in the tank. Yeah. I mean, he, he did that. He sabotaged the car. I mean, the one nice thing he ever did for me, he took it away. So my dad was just like, he was just not a great person. He was wild. (laughs) Yeah. He was wild bill. You know, I loved him for that because I saw a lot of me in him. The good parts of him, I would say are in me, not the bad, (laughs) but yeah. I mean, I think my dad, like alcohol has never been my thing. But I think the addictive personality definitely comes from my dad. You know, when I got hooked on doing drugs or whatever, you know, it was for multiple reasons, but a lot of it was to anesthetize the past or whatever, but also just because it's in my DNA probably to be addicted to things. I feel like this is kind of a transition, but you know, in the inside cover of of your book, you put what is in a name right? There's a lot that goes into a name. There is a lot that goes into a name. I mean, even if you're not into numerology or that kind of a thing, my mother named me after an affair that my father had. Why she did that, I have never been able to get a clear answer. But imagine, you know, every time you hear your name, you, you know, and she tells you about it, you know, and she told your daughter, And she told my daughter, which was humiliating beyond. So, I mean, my dad, you know, he picked Sam. That was my name. And so I kind of adopted that more because I felt that's what I should have been named or whatever. But it it had a whole, a lot of baggage attached to it. Because had I been a boy, I wouldn't have been named Pammy Sue. And I would have been Sam, you know, so, you know what I mean? Or would she have named me Polly or Paul, you know, or something? I don't know. It felt like another cruel joke on me, you know, like for a long time, I was conflicted. Like, should I have been a boy? Maybe I should have been a boy. Then this, I wouldn't be being sexually abused, which I'm not so sure about with my grandfather, But, you know, it's like, so I had so many identity crises, you know, I grew up on this farm. Like I said, my family was not poor, but we lived like poor people, you know, because we were landowners. We had acres and acres of land. The high school that I was supposed to go to was on our property that we sold in high school. So, I mean, we were kind of more affluent than we appeared, Mm. but like, you know, if, if anything happened to the barn, like the roof blew off, it's fixed the next day. The house was dilapidated, falling apart, and he never did anything. And it was very interesting that, so it was kind of embarrassing to grow up on this spooky farm, you know, with the porch falling off. And, you know, and all my friends had the cookie cutter suburban houses. And they oh, lived I can like, relate to that the, too. You know, they lived in the suburbs and we lived on this spooky hill and this spooky house on this spooky farm, you know, like in the middle of nowhere. And we were kind of like weird, like we were looked at five, all the girls were really extremely pretty and beautiful, but we were kind of like sad, you know, because our parents were divorced and no one else in this area was divorced and stuff like that. So it was a unique kind of, a unique kind of childhood like that, but I think my mom, I was able to give her grace later in life. Like, you know, like, look, she was abused. She didn't know how to deal with it. I think her, her emotionally, she was stunted by the whole experience. And so it just, I think when I ran away, she was glad I was gone. I mean, as sad as that is to say, like, you know, you look at your kid, your oldest one, what are they 14 now? Yep. 13. 
that's the age I was. And can you even imagine it? I can. No. Fine. Yeah. I mean, just like, okay, you're on your own and your mom's happy about it. You know? I look at yeah, the 18 year old girls that are babysitting my kids now. And I'm like, I can't believe my mom got pregnant with me at that age. Like they are babies. Or I can't believe, you know, or if you're like me, it's like, I don't know. Can I leave them with an 18 year old? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm afraid to leave them. What if something happens and they're not mature enough to handle it? I mean, yeah. If you're a good parent, you think these things. Yeah, we were totally latchkey kids growing up without any kind of... And I feel like you turned out amazing. So that does give me hope too. Like, you know, you can give your kids a little bit more freedom than we probably do. (laughs) Yeah, well, try and tell me that. (laughs) Well, you know, the one thing, I have a super skill though. I can tell anything, if anything is troubling my kids, like I know it. Like they can't hide anything from me. That's you know, great. Because, that is a super. Because skill. like, I know, like I've experienced almost everything, you know, you can experience like that. So for me, I think that's like a superpower I have over my kids is, a, okay, what's on your mind? What do you mean? What's on my mind? I can tell something's on your mind. Okay. You know, like I'm gay. <laughs> okay. Do they talk you know, to you about anything? Do they feel like they really can talk to you? See, I yeah, love that. Not too. so much their dad, but me. Yes. I told my son, you know, like, why couldn't you have grown up gay 10 years ago? <laughs> like, you know, like when it was cool to be gay, you know, like I'm terrified for him now, you know, it's just crazy. Like, it just seems like it happened in the blinking of an eye. What, what in the lineup of kids, you're the firstborn. Yep. And you have two siblings. I have two sisters, two little sisters. So daddy didn't get any boys. When you were talking about that, I actually thought about that because he really did want one. You know, it's interesting. My dad has more grandsons than granddaughters. And he actually, I feel like relates very well with girls because he had three sisters and three daughters and that's, yeah. he knows how to play with. You know? Yeah. I mean, my dad really wanted a son and he so ended up I. having... When I met him, he had a stepson mm-hmm. and a half sibling of mine, a girl, another girl. He had a mistress and she got pregnant and she had two other girls with a man, another with her husband. She had an affair. She got pregnant with my half sister and then she got cancer. And so before she died, she asked my father if he would come and get her because she was afraid to leave her because she felt her husband knew that she wasn't his. And so my dad came when she died and abducted my half-sister and took her home. Wow. I hope that worked out. It worked out. Yeah. I mean, they had a very close relationship and she was part of the reason he couldn't take me in because... She was only like, she was about 10 years younger than me. And his wife, his current wife was like, okay, I'll take, you know, I'll take in this daughter because I can raise her as my own, but I'm not taking in a teenager, you know, no way. Hardly blame her. So. Wow. Are are you guys at all in touch? Oh, my sister? Yeah. Yeah. We're Facebook buddies. (laughs) You guys can talk about Wild Bill stories. Yeah. I mean, her Wild Bill stories are really different from mine. Yeah. But she really idolized him. He was really charismatic. I mean, you could not not love my father. Like, he was just like, like, he was funny, you know, and he was charming when he was drunk. And he was always drunk. <laughs> you know? I'd like I mean, to take him to the Kentucky Derby or to the horse races. He was probably Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, we went to many horse races together and it was always a blast. He, he really knew what he was doing. And, you know, he taught me how to count cards and he, all kinds of useful stuff, you know. That is useful. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, I think my knack for playing backgammon really came from my dad. Not that he was into backgammon, but just calling someone's bluff, you know, knowing how to play it, play it close to the vest, do, you know, just draw attention, blow on the dice, you know, a whole shtick I developed with him. I love that. I think my dad will really relate to that. My dad plays poker. He's a chess player. He (laughs) has gone to the horse races my whole life. So he will like all of that. Yeah. I love that. That's sweet. Is there anything you'd like to ask my dad? Well, I thought, you know, I know you ask your guests that. So, I mean, there's so many questions I would ask daddy, but 
I was just curious seeing you and how well adjusted you are. We don't get any redos in life. You know, you can't go back and recreate the past. But I thought if he could change something about raising his kids, what would that be? Yeah. I'm just curious. That's so cool. Well, I have absolutely loved connecting with you. I have to go pick up my little guy from playgroup. Well, thank you for having me, Rena. Yes. Let's keep in touch. (laughs) Okay. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Samantha Hart, and she does have a big heart, that is for sure. And she asked me the question, if I could go back in time, oh, what would I do? Maybe that's differently. Or what do I wish that trait that I might have had that was a little bit better? And I think that would be where I would have a little bit more patience for things. Maybe where I wasn't such a hard-nosed fella. Yet, when you want to start changing the formula, then you don't become the person who you are. So it's very difficult to change anything. Because going back in time possibly changes the outcome of the future. So isn't that also part of your story is that you also are re-examining where you came from, but yet again, it made you a stronger, more compassionate person for the future. And by standing up and making sure that you took the blows, other people had a better opportunity, maybe with their lives. So it's very hard to change our history and think that by changing something, it would have made it better for the future. I don't really know if that's really true. Yeah, when you ask most people, do you have any regrets and do you want to change anything? They always say, oh, no regrets, right? Well, it's really the truth is that the best solution or the best answer is that there better be no regrets because you can't move forward with your life if you have them. And the only way that you can be better or be a better person of yourself in the future is by making sure that you can learn from the past, but not be regretful or not be at peace with yourself and moving forward with your life. And if you get stuck in a a record that's just skipping, you know, going round and round and round, you don't get anywhere. So the woulda, coulda, shoulda game is never a good game to play. She figured out some of the right games to play. She definitely figured out how to navigate and rise the ranks. Well, this is what makes her so strong is because she was able to overcome some of these adversities and really it made her a stronger, tougher person and someone that was able to communicate with herself to be able to move forward with her life. And whether it's doing a podcast or writing a book or writing notes or changing jobs and taking whatever shit that's thrown your way is to do something about it. And sometimes the world is a very ugly place and it comes from all walks of life and all situations and sometimes from all families. But it's those that don't let anything stop them from improving their lives and making their mark are the people that have a chance for success at the end of the game or at the end of the story. And sometimes it only takes that little extra push or drive is sometimes the difference between winning and losing. Well, she's definitely taken the extra drive. You know what else is interesting too? Her mom named her after her father's affair. And she talks about in her book, what is the meaning of a name? I think that that's really interesting too. Yeah, that's quite a quirk of fate or some type of ironic twist to all of this is that no matter what gift she was given or what name she was given, it's always like someone's playing a practical joke on her, you know, where it doesn't appear to be what it really means. You know what I mean? And I think that what she has done with some of these tricks is turning into where she's going to be genuine and open with people and loving and compassionate because some of those things were lacking in her life. And she wanted to make sure that that doesn't happen with her loved ones going forward. Maybe without some of these experiences, she wouldn't be able to help the people that she's trying to help now. She's even thinking about opening up a foundation to actually help other people that have gone through some of these traumatic moments in their lives. So she's seen it and done it all herself. And even though her father and mother, you know, she's got four sisters, really maybe five sisters, and she's really there to be a a strong woman's advocate. And it's the way she grew up and the way she lived and the kind of example that she got, she's trying to better that situation in the future because you can't really go back 
and change the past. So I applaud her in looking forward and forward thinking and trying to help others so that they can climb out of the hole and a deep hole that she climbed out of. Yeah, I definitely and feel like she was a protector of her sisters and a protector of her, her own daughter. Absolutely. The other ironic thing is that she doesn't, she's not a braggart. She doesn't brag about her successes. She just works hard in overcoming the deficiencies that she's faced and plows ahead and lets her actions speak louder than her words. As you know, I like that. I like a person of action. And by doing things and putting things together, it's really part of her success story. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.